Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Hugh Lauder. I'm the acting director of the Institute for Policy Research. Um, it's my initial pleasure, because there's going to be more, um, to welcome Sir John this evening, um, to welcome also the Deputy Mayor and our Pro Vice Chancellor, and to you all. Uh, the Institute for Policy Research is concerned with addressing fundamental policy problems, and I don't think there could be a better uh, occasion to see how we might think about that than the lecture that Sir John will give tonight. Uh, so that's what the Institute does, and I'm going to say no more, but I'm going to ask Jenny Woods, who is um, on the leadership team of the Institute and focuses on science and technology, to say a few more words about Sir John. Colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, it's a very great honour and a pleasure tonight to introduce Professor Sir John Beddington to you. In my role as the IPR's science ambassador, I help connect science and engineering research to the world of policymaking. It's something I believe is very important. And Sir John has probably done more for that cause than any other person in this country. In his five years as the government chief scientific advisor, he raised the profile of science advice and of scientists themselves within the civil service. He ensured all major government departments each took on their own chief science advisor to assess evidence and provide independent challenges to policy decisions. Between 2008 and 2013, he reported directly to three prime ministers, providing them with information on everything from solar storms to swine flu. He advised COBRA and Cabinet. He directed government foresight activities, looking forward into the coming decades to determine how best we might prepare for the future. Today, he will draw on that experience, as well as his own academic research expertise in population biology and sustainability, to talk to us about the challenges of the 21st century and what's happening to the world. Sir John, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> well, thank you, Jenny. Um, I feel enormously at home in this part of the world because, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm from the West Country myself. And um, when I first went into, you know, how do you become a chief scientific advisor of the government, um, you, I had one test, which was I had to, um, memor you know, read a brief and then be interviewed by somebody from the Today programme. Now, I'm quite cunning, so I thought, let's move this away from a, a judgment, but get them on my side. So, you know, teacher-pupil relationship. So I said, how did I do? And the, the person said, well, you made a really big mistake. And I said, oh, what was that? And, and she said, you, you didn't look me in the eyes. And said, so for heaven's sake, it's on the radio. <laughs> and actually, it's quite a good trick, because apparently the timbre of your voice changes if you, uh, if you look someone in the eyes. So if, for example, you're interviewed on the TV, on the, on, you know, externally, it's quite good to sort of conjure up a face. But what she said to me also was she said, you have a real advantage, though. And I said, what was that? She says, you have a West Country accent. <laughs> and people believe yeah, people with a West Country accent. So when I got the job, I said to my wife, if you ever hear me on the radio saying there is absolutely nothing to fear, <laughs> get on the next plane. <laughs> so anyway, thank you very much for turning up tonight on what is a pretty foul night. 
Um, I'm going to go through... The, the talk I'm going to give tonight is going to be looking, first of all, at some of the sort of short-term things, some of which I was involved in, some of it's, which we have to worry about in the short term. And that will be the first half of the talk. And then I'm going to be thinking about some of the things that are pretty much bound to happen. You know, what is happening to the world? Well, the obvious answer to that is don't know. But um, the, what I'd, I would like to talk about a bit later is the sort of things that, can, um, that are going to happen. You know, that things are uncertain, but they're uncertain in terms of detail rather than ultimately what is going to happen to the world. So that's the structure of the talk. And it's kind of gloomy. Um, uh, most people say that they always feel like going for a drink after a talk by me, so the timing is perfect, as it were. Um, and, um, I, but I will try and sort of put point to some of the things that we can actually think about doing um, as we address these, what are really quite difficult problems. And what I'm going to start with is something that, as Chief Scientific Advisor in Government, there is a thing called the National Risk Register. Now, I don't know whether those of you at the back can read this, but the things that I've sort of circled there, what we have, the, this National Risk Register is uh, on the two axes. There's an axis, the bottom axis, the x-axis, if you like, is one which is saying the likelihood of something occurring. And the y-axis, the vertical one, is saying and what would be the impact of this happening. Um, and this is the way that actually government as a whole, and I think we're, the British government is sort of rather foresight, has a fair bit of foresight by thinking about this, is looking at risks and thinking about ways that we can prepare and mitigate them. And looking at this one, um, the sort of top right, which is the highest likelihood and the biggest impact, is some form of pandemic. And I'll go through some of these, uh, these others here. And, you know, looking closely at them, you can see, um, for example, that um, the pandemic influenza is the biggest one, but coastal flooding, which is fairly familiar, um, fair, uh, and I, indeed topical, as we might say. Um, this, this was in the risk register. And then there's a couple of things that you will not be so familiar with, which I will touch on. One is space weather and the other is um, volcanic eruption, but an effusive one. And I won't be able to call up, cover all of them, but that's our National Risk Register, and it, it fundamentally enables us to actually plan for the uncertain. And, you know, um, I think it's fair to say that, our, that the level of coastal and, and indeed inland flooding that we're getting at the moment is fairly rare, um, but I will, I'll come back to that in a moment. So, how do we do that? Well... By and large, when we're looking at dangers and risks, there's two sorts of things. One of them is natural hazards, um, which, in a sense, we look, we look at the historical evidence, the predictability, and we get expert advice. But there's another aspect, which I'm not going to talk about today, which is that to do with, um, essentially, the threat that comes from terrorism. And there, the sort of things that we look in terms of assessing the likelihood are intelligence about the capability of, of our enemies, intelligence about their intent, and intelligence about our own vulnerability. And taken together, what we do, uh, we move to an assessment of what the likelihood is, what the risk, and what the, um, and what the impact is likely to be. So that's the sort of thing we do, behind, we do every year. And as Chief Scientific Advisor, my job was to look at it um, to try to assess the likelihood of these things. And, of course, it's much easier to do that in the context 
of, um, of a natural event because you've got some frequency. In the case of some form of terrorist or other state intervention, that's much more complicated in the sense that you don't have good empirical underpinning and by its very nature one is relying on sources that are slightly, slightly um, secret and, and, in and in consequence quite uncertain. So that's the sort of way we arrive at that. And let me go to the first and most dangerous, and the first one, the one that is really at the top of our risk register, which is, the, uh, which is some form of pandemic. Now, in 2009, you, some of you may remember that we had this epidemic of a flu virus which contained... Come on in. I'm used to students coming in late. <laughs> and you, sir, are clearly not a student. <laughs> you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> Um, so in 2009, we had this pandemic with, with a, a virus, a new, brand new virus, which had characteristics of a virus that attacked p birds, pigs, and humans. And the, the graph shows that we've had a lot, you know, over the last hundred or so years, we've had a whole series of epidemics of influenza. And these can be quite devastating. The biggest one in terms of killing very many, many people was after the Second World War in 1918, the Spanish influenza. And subsequent to that, as you can see, and the coding of H1N1 and so on, I won't bore you with jargon about the different types of viral strains and what their underlying DNA, RNA composition is. But <clears throat> these are the sort of things that we need to, that have been happening. And they've been happening really on quite a regular recurrence. And one of the things that I was asked to do, and part of this, part of the job as chief scientist, is to actually deal with these issues. And sometimes, of course, these things are a mix of mad, humorous, but really dev devastating. In the case of the swine flu epidemic, the first phone call I got was from the president of the National Farmers Union, who said, is there any chance we can change the name of this to the Mexican flu outbreak? <laughs> because we're having a lot of problem with our pig farmers. Such, such is the delight. And actually, we were incredibly lucky with the swine flu. Um, people did die. The first thing that happened was it moved around the world very quickly. It was found in a few cases in Mexico. Uh, a month later, it was in 60-odd countries. Um, and a lot of people were getting it. The pattern of mortality was a bit unusual. In fact, that you know, essentially pregnant women and teenagers were actually seen to be more susceptible than the old and the very young. Very untypical for a um, for an influenza virus. Now, again, I'd say that uh, we were lucky because we actually discovered that this thing was actually really quite benign. And the, the story about that comes from actually one of the better jokes I heard in government from a politician, because the swine flu um, actually went round, and the joke was that um, from one of the then health secretary, he said, well, you can say one thing for swine flu, it closed, it closed down Eton College, and a hundred years of socialism has failed to do that. <laughs> Um, not a bad joke, but actually there's some interesting science behind it because it did indeed close Eton College and we were able to, and both pupils and teachers actually got, uh, we were able to take blood from them. And what we found was that for every um, person who actually showed symptoms, eight people had actually had the virus. So that it was actually really quite benign. And if you interpret that in terms of a sort of mortality rate, 
um, or morbidity rate, by and large, it's very, very low. Give you an idea of it. It's about one in 100,000 people died who got it. Um, remember, for everyone who showed symptoms, eight actually had it but didn't show symptoms. Now, the reason why it still stays, why a pandemic influenza still stays on our risk register is that bird flu, for example, which is uh, the H5N1 variety, which kills, which is a major epidemic in poultry in Southeast Asia, humans who get it, 60% die. So compare an, an epidemic in which 60% of the people who have actually got the virus die well, um, with one where one in 100,000. And swine flu is quite disruptive. So that's one of the reasons why there is a lot of work on thinking about developing vaccines for these sorts of things. So that one really should and is high on our risk register. But we live in a world where a lot of, of things are happening. And one of the things is that we are seeing new diseases coming out the whole time. I've showed animal and human diseases here, but we also have had, there's also plant diseases. And one of the things that we have got to be thinking about is the fact that we will be getting new diseases. Now, the thing about it is that we always did have these new diseases. There's not some gestalt and change in the, um, in the 21st century. Um, but we, we now can detect them. We can now do, we can actually perform some form of DNA assessment. We can actually properly identify whatever, whether it's a virus or a fungus or a bacteria. But I think that picture gives you a pretty good idea of the sort of scale in which we are getting new diseases coming in. And these are for animals and plants, but you'll remember the, um, the, Dutch, the ash disease, um, cholera, which um, came in two years ago, killing and, and continuing to kill large numbers of our native ash trees. So these sort of diseases are there, and they are a worry, and we have to think about them, and this is going to be a, one of the patterns of our 21st century. And the top right-hand um, slide shows the, why it moves around the world so much. The patterns that are shown in that top right-hand slide are essentially air travel. And that air travel has, means that a disease, as, it, this, as swine flu did, originated in Mexico, was, around the, was pretty much in every major country of the world in, in 30 or 40 days. That's the sort of thing that, we're going to ha that will happen, and it will continue to happen in the, uh, in, as we move through the 21st century. And it's one of the reasons why it is high on the risk register. We need to think about it. And the, the, the novel coronavirus... Um, which is the very last one on the right-hand side, showing in 2012, turned out not to be terribly infectious. Again, we were kind of lucky. But Schallenberg, which is a, uh, named after a small town in Germany, um, is actually a rather nasty disease of cattle and sheep, which, provide, which provides um, a problem for, for um, lambs and calves, in which they can be quite badly distorted at birth. So these things are out there and they're a problem. So that's one of the things that is going to hurt us during the 21st century, is diseases, whether they're plants, animals and humans. And sometimes, as in the case of bird flu, they're a bit of both. Now, one of the uh, other things uh, that <clears throat> I want to talk about and is on the risk register is volcanoes. Now, one of the things that I didn't get a tip from from my tutor from the Today programme was how to pronounce a word which only has one, one vowel in the 11 and sort of 17 um, consonants. And so um, going on the Today programme to talk about 
that thing at the bottom, and I still can't pronounce it, so I refer to it as the volcano, um, was, uh, <clears throat> was one of the things that I had to deal with. And you'll all, of course, remember um, what was happening in 2010 when the ash cloud from, Ice from this volcano in Iceland essentially closed our, um, closed our airspace. And one of the nice things about it, one of the things that came out, and I'll, I was, I'll talk a little bit more in more detail about that in a moment, but it happened, and we actually got it wrong. Um, it was not on the risk register. Nobody had thought about it, but it should have been, because by, quite frankly, you know, there's a sort of simple truism. There's actually quite a lot of ice, quite a lot of volcanoes in Iceland. And um, when, if you look at the data, um, basically there's been... Um, in about one every four years. And the, if you look at the likelihood and the impact of all the volcanoes in Iceland, and the little histogram at the bottom shows the frequency going back over a thousand years of volcanic eruptions in the uh, in Iceland, uh, Krakatoa, I do, I do know, is not part of Iceland. So, you know, and the, the geographers amongst you will say, go. You know, the chief scientific advisor thought Krakatoa was in Iceland. Well, I didn't. I've just put it on there to show it's a very small, very low probability event, but a very, very high impact. But the other thing I think about these, about these other Icelandic volcanoes, I can pronounce them. <laughs> Laki, Katla, I can live with those. If it had happened when I was in government, uh, in government, it would not have been a problem. But one of the things that happened with that particular, uh, <clears throat> that particular eruption was, of course, that we, got, we had a coincidence of two events, namely the eruption of this volcano and the movement of air, um, essentially uh, weather, bringing it down from Iceland to us. And what we do was we looked at, um, the, we looked at having to see where the ash was going, and that involved modelling and also satellite observations, which I showed you but one of the sort of crazy things about that, which just never came out in the press coverage, was actually what closed, the, um, closed our airspace was not the ash, except secondarily. It was a completely daft regulation. Because the regulation said if there was any ash in the air column, um, you couldn't fly. Any ash. So at tiny concentrations, the regulations for our, our, our air traffic control, and this was, this was European-wide, said we had to close it. So we had a bit of a dilemma, because quite reasonably the, air, the, um, the airlines were saying, this is daft, you know, you can hardly see it. And they were criticising um, our poor old Met Office, who were criticised quite a lot recently, especially in the southwest. Um, we're actually coming up and saying, well, actually, there is, um, there is some ash in the air, and, you know, their, their models are shown on the right-hand side, and the, um, and the satellite picture is shown on the left. And what was intriguing about it, we had a real dilemma because this was mad. And now, of course, in a computer model, how do you define essentially no ash? Um, you know, so effectively zero, i.e. no ash in the air column, was defined as being sort of grams times 10 to the minus 17 um, per metre cubed. And uh, that's not much, not much ash there, really. But we had to, but um, this was closing all our air things because anything above that was closing it. So I had a slightly difficult task of trying to explain to the Prime Minister and Cabinet we really need to redefine zero here. <laughs> so we redefine zero from 10 to the minus 17 to 10 to the minus 19, and we opened the, air, the airfields. Um, that is not a well known story, but, and I will deny it, of course, if, if questioned. 
But that doesn't work. So, in a sense, that explosive eruption, which was essentially a volcanic eruption going up through um, a glacier um, and therefore exploding, was sending ash very high up. That one is actually not much of a worry. It's an inconvenience. If you've got sensible regulation, you wouldn't have a problem. And we now have sensible regulations. But the one that is actually quite a worry is an effusive reaction. Um, interaction. In 1783, the Lanky eruption basically killed hundreds of thousands of people in Europe. First, by, first of all by um, sulfur inhalation, but also by essentially cutting out the sun, so that you had absolute massive famine in that year as this went off. And this is something that actually lasts for um, about six or eight months, and it was really dramatic in its effect. And we can get those. Now, of course, the good thing about Lanky is I can pronounce it. The bad thing about it, it will be devastating if it actually happens. And the approximate, it's about a one in a 500-year event, um, chance, 4% 4, 4 chance in 20 years. But if it happened, and one of the nasty things you can actually do to uh, this is to actually work out, do the calculation of saying what's the probability, if the probability is that, what's, how many years are you going to have to, what's the probability you can go 20 years without it? And that's quite interesting. And well, in a mischievous way, I looked at the National Risk Register when I left government and was succeeded by Sir Mark Walpert, is I looked at all our national risks and said, what's the probability that he will have five years as Chief Scientific Advisor without at least one of these things happening? Very satisfactorily small, I should say. <laughs> One you won't know much about is actually the um, is space weather. Now, I won't say which prime minister, but one prime minister might ask me what I was really worried about, and I said, "Well, I think one we should be really quite worried about space weather." And he quite reasonably said, "What on earth is that?" And um, well, space weather is effectively um, comes from sun from sunspot activity, and what you can have is uh, emissions from the sun of electrically charged particles, and the various jargon to describe them. But the, what happened in March 2012 was actually, and it's shown in the top right-hand diagram, was that the, and the left-hand diagram was the sunspots, a big coronal mass emission with electrically charged particles coming to Earth. It hit the Earth with a glancing blow. And that was, we were really lucky on that because these things can be enormously disruptive, and they come with quite a frequency. The solar cycles um, tend to be about 11 years. And this particular slide was put together from a paper in 2012, um, early in 2012, and the predicted maximum of the solar activity coincided with the start of the Olympic Games. Um, I'm glad to say it didn't happen. You know, these things don't come with certainty. But... There is a real problem because we have a big vulnerability here. Um, space weather has the potential of interrupt. Obviously, it interferes with air flight. It interferes with our global positioning systems. But also, the big one that it worries about is it actually can affect the power network, because depending on the magnetic pole orientation of the coronal mass emission, if it's in one way, it'll it'll actually wipe out our electricity generation. Um, because you get a surge, it's, dri it's driven down the 
<coughs> down essentially power lines. So the bigger the, uh, the, the um, distance between the nodes of the power system, the more, effect, the more effect it will have. So this is a real worry. And of course, the worry, but the worry we have there, and again, this is a problem for Mark Wolpert, not me, I'm glad to say, because it's our predictability of this. We have satellites around the sun which will say the coronal mass emission is coming, and so about 17 hours before uh, it hits the Earth, we can be pretty much saying it's going to hit the Earth. But the thing that worries, and so you can stop, you can turn satellites around, you can stop aircraft and so on. But in terms of the power grid, it's a real problem because it depends on the, on the polarity of the coronal mass emission. And the, um, the time delay on that is we have about 40 minutes before, uh, um, before it actually hits. So if you can imagine a conversation with my successor, with the Prime Minister, saying we have a coronal mass emission moving towards us, it'll hit about sort of, you know, five o'clock tomorrow afternoon, Prime Minister. He says, okay, fine, what should I worry about? And you say, well, you know, we obviously are doing things with the satellite communication, GPS, we're turning the satellites around. We are at, we're obviously cancelling flights. But the worry, one we're a bit worried about is the grid. And um, he'll say, well, what should we do about the grid? And you say, well, I can't really tell you, but I can tell you 40 minutes before you've got to turn it off. Um, so I'm looking forward to how Mark deals with that, if we actually have a coronal mass emission, and I will look forward to going on the Today programme and say I have a lot of sympathy with Sir Mark. Um, but how, what's the sort of bureaucracy of this? The bureaucracy for scientific advice is that you've heard of the COBRA committee. It's pretty much meeting constantly at the moment, and it's chaired by Eric Pickles, which is the first time I'd ever think, thought Eric Pickles would chair an emergency committee, and nobody had better record that one on this thing, so <laughs> we'll edit that out of the film, please. Um, and, uh, the, and the COBRA committee, um, which some of you may know, <laughs> You have this lovely idea of a sort of striking snake, you know, the speed of which the cobra moves. But actually, um, cobra stands for Cabinet Office Briefing Room A. Um, so, so the sort of animal illusion is not quite there. And one of the things that I actually learned in government quite early on, actually, was the importance of acronyms. And Gordon Brown said, we need to have... A, um, we, I need a science advisory group to help, in a, to help you know, when things are going wrong. So I said, Prime Minister, would it be possible that we would actually call it the Science Advisory Group in Emergencies, thus moving from the acronym SAG to the acronym SAGE? You can understand my reasons for, the, for, for this. And these are quite, these, such things are important. But one of the things that happens is you get things occurring together. And the, the terrible disaster in Japan, 25,000 people killed by the tsunami, um, most of the media didn't concentrate on those poor 25,000 people or so killed, the devastation in the, in the northeastern provinces of Japan, but focused on the Fukushima Daiichi um, power station. And I was asked to convene a SAGE meeting in which, I <coughs> in, which in a sense, the question from Cabinet to me was, should we evacuate our nationals? Should we move the embassy away from Tokyo further south to Osaka or somewhere like that? And because um, of the fear that the power plant, which was massively damaged, would actually produce um, meltdown on its reactors, that the fuel ponds would burn, and you would have the movement, if the weather was in the wrong direction, you'd get the movement of radioactive um, material going into greater Tokyo. 
So I pulled together a team of, of people who could model the movement of particles, people are radiation experts, health experts, and so on. And actually we came up with something which said, this is daft. There's just not enough radiation to worry about at all. Even in the worst possible situation, with all four reactors exploding, melting down, and all six fuel ponds burning, and the weather pushing in the direction of Tokyo, all the analysis we did pointed to the fact that, there was that the amount of radiation would be trivial. Um, and indeed, I, so I, you know, we gave that advice, and around about the time we gave the advice... The French had just evacuated their, their nationals and moved their embassy to Osaka. So had the Germans, so had the Swiss, and so on. And, you know, like, um, so it was a sort of slightly odd, odd discussion with the Prime Minister saying, are you sure, John? Are you sure you're sure? And, you know, one has to have trust in one's analysis. And actually, we, um, we were right. I made one terrible mistake here. Terrible mistake. I gave, some, uh, I gave a, a series of telephone calls to be quizzed by the, ex our, the British community in Japan. And I was saying, look, there really isn't any danger. And I said, it's just like eating about 20 bananas. And I've been persecuted by the banana importers <laughs> ever since. The good thing I didn't do was to say it's just like taking a holiday in Cornwall. <laughs> because if I had, I'd never be able to go west of here and, uh, and it would be fun. But one of the odd things about it, of course, is that Nobody, you know, like, this is not what the media think. It's not what the NGO community think. The science is right. And to give you a flavour, and David Cameron is quite witty, uh, because he said, well, John, if you're that sure, he said, I think you should go and visit Fukushima. <laughs> so about a month after it, I was uh, loaded onto a plane to go and visit Fukushima. Now, I went with a young man who works for the Ministry of Defence, who was my assistant at the time, and he carried a radiation monitor. And I, we picked up, visiting Fukushima, three microsieverts, a unit of radiation. Flying from London to Tokyo, we picked up 17. So it gives you a flavour that this is really, really daft. Now, nobody believes this, I think, or some don't, but look what happened. Germany has phased out nuclear power, um, the Swiss have phased out nuclear power. Japan is planning to do so. All on the basis of a really very, very poor evidence that there is a real danger. And nobody died from the, from the radiation. And so I started to look into this. And I looked at, for example, Chernobyl. Everybody's heard of Chernobyl. And I looked at the epidemiology. This is done by a colleague at Imperial College. Who I didn't know had done this work. And it points to the fact that Chernobyl, which is the, by far and away the worst um, nuclear disaster that we've seen, um, the number of deaths is really pretty small, probably under 100. Now, there's the first 28 or so were people who are actually trying to put out the fire, You're very, very brave people and um, firefighters and helicopter fighters and so on. The death rate from thyroid cancer, which is what, because there was no intervention, is quite small, and no effects on fertility or malformations or infant mortality. Not what you will read. Not what you will get from NGO input on or anti-nuclear. And just to give you a flavour for it, um, the World Health Organisation did an assessment which came out um, last year, I think, uh, looking at the, um, at the genuine health. This is the World Health Organisation. People who are looking at this, they found that essentially there will be no health consequences, um, in, even in Fukushima province, in terms of you would not be able to detect 
any increase in cancer on the basis of the amount of radiation that's put out. Now, that was the World Health Organization. That was Greenpeace. The World Health Organization is clearly a political report, is a clearly a political statement to protect the nuclear industry. Well, that's kind of working a bit hard on the World Health Organization. You know, um, they may have their problems and they probably earn too much salaries and it's tax free and they live in a nice place, but it's, um, I think it's a bit unlikely they're working for the nuclear industry, but that's the sort of thing you get. So that's a sort of vignette of some of the problems that. I've had to deal with the sort of issues, and nuclear is going to be there. The future of civil nuclear power, if we're going to address climate change, has got to be addressed. And what I want to now move to is the slightly longer term. And the first thing to notice is um, that climate change is important. Basically, what we're seeing, if you think about the National Risk Register and look at the various of these things. Coastal flooding, low temperatures, heavy snow, inland flooding, heat waves, storms and gales and drought. All of these, as climate change operates, and I shall go into a book quite a bit more detail on that, are going to move to the right and up. They're going to get more likely and they're going to get more severe. And the little picture, um, which, I, which comes from Tewkesbury in 2007... Uh, but it could be Dawlish in 2014. And these are the sort of factors, and the, the other pictures showing snow at Heathrow and so on, with very, very unseasonably cold winters. This is one of the things that we really need to, to think about. And this is going to be happening. So now I'll move to some of the issues that I really I will spend the rest of the lecture on. First one is... You know, my title of my talk, What's Happening to the World. Well, in some certain key ways, the, the next 20 years are going to be completely determined. And I'll talk about four things that they're determined. One is population. There's going to be another billion people on the planet by 2025. Uh, this, was written, this slide was produced in 2012, so 13 years away. It's now 20. There's about, about a billion people an extra billion by 2025. Urbanisation, 2010, the first time the urban population exceeded the rural population. Um, again, something that uh, is a major trend and is going to increase. Um, then the other thing, and I'll come, come on to all of these in, in more detail later, that um, we'll get, the world is getting more prosperous. There is an increase in consumption. There's massive poverty, but the, that is happening, that the, there are an increase, and again I'll come back to more detail on that. And then climate change, and again I will come back to that, but the thing to say is that climate change is just happening. Um, and it happens with a time delay. And the greenhouse gases that were, that were in the atmosphere in the 1990s is determining our current climate and hence our weather. Because there's about a 25 year time delay in the system due to the fact that changes, the extra energy coming from um, in increased incidence of light because of the, carbon, uh, the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere is going to mean that our climate, our current weather now and the climate that goes with it is determined by the 1990s. Corollary of that, of course, is that the increased greenhouse gases that we're actually seeing in the atmosphere now determine they are going to be determining our climate in about 20 years' time. That's the thing to remember. But let me go back to population. This is the thing that, and I'm going, I will come back to this quite a lot, because it's frightening. 
In, seven, in 2011, 7 billion people on the planet. 14 years later, there'll be another billion. Now, that's not going to be evenly distributed. The, the, the uh, graph shows the pattern, and essentially, Africa is going to go increase by 500 million people in 12 years. Asia will increase by, 12, uh, by another 500 million in the same period, but Asia will grow from a population of 4 billion to 4.5. Africa will grow from a population of a billion to 1.5 billion. The proportional change in Africa is enormously dramatic. And that is happening at the same time, and I'll come back to some of these issues, it's going to be happening with a big change in the ratio of urban to rural people. Look at the top initially. The bottom slide I'll come into in a moment. The bottom half of this slide I'll come to in a moment. But just think of the bullet points. A developing country will be building a city of a million people every five days. Um, and to put it into a parochial context in Africa, in 12 years' time, there will be a thousand cities the size of Edinburgh. New. That's the pace of change that is occurring with population growth and urbanization. And the strength of the effect of that is really quite dramatic. And that's going to happen. It may not be 2025, may not be November 2025, but it might be as late as January 2026, or it might be a bit earlier, you know, sort of August 2025. These things are happening, and short of the sort of change of a complete, you know, something like a nuclear war, a pandemic would not have much effect. Um, the sort of deaths from a pandemic are maybe 100 million, is the most we've ever seen. Um, but the world population is growing by 60 million a year. So it wouldn't even have a, you know, it would just have a tiny effect. And the other thing that's happening, so these are the sort of things that really do, cons really do, do pose challenges for the 21st century. And the time scale is really pretty quick. 13 years? Another 500 million people in Africa? Another 500 million in Asia? I'll talk to the distributions a bit later. But, and the point about at the bottom here is that there is an issue that, and again, it's a good thing. People are living longer. And the changes in people, which I call more vulnerable, being over 65 myself helps, um, is that in the developing world, the number of people living longer is increasing quite dramatically. And that is mainly to make them more vulnerable. And the urbanization, this is showing where people are going to be living. This is, and you can see, um, you know, the red dots are proportional to the size, the bigger ones for cities of more than 10 million and so on. The concentration around coastal areas, particularly in Asia, but also in South America, North America, West Africa, is really quite profound. And that's why the, the vulnerability is important, because these are, are going to be vulnerable to weather effects that are driven by climate change. Let me go to climate change. You, you've heard about it, and sceptics and so on. Now, the Earth is getting warmer. This is data in which is taken from millions of observations in which the red bits are saying it's hotter compared with the previous averages. So this is for 55, 65, and 75. So the more red on there, the hotter it's getting. You can sort of see... Um, that, it, you know, there's a bit of red occurring around the Arctic, a bit of red in a few other places. It's mainly orange, and there's quite a lot of blue. That's the sort of thing that's happening. Now, this is the picture for the last six years. And this is not 
geeks doing mo computer models down the road in Exeter at the Met Office. These are millions of observations. And the difference between 75 and now, and the, the figures there, are showing the dramatic difference that is actually occurring in terms of the overall, overall global warming. And it's all around the world. So that is something. So when you see the climate skeptics, the Daily Mail will say, you know, the Met Office get it wrong again, they, they, or whatever. It is not true. It is not true. This is millions of data points. Nothing to do with um, modelling. It is actually a consequence, and predicted by the modelling, but that's the sort of thing that's happening. And what it, one of the consequences of it is, is that extreme events are going to become more likely. And we're seeing that now. Now, this is, for example, the, um, some, weather, some data from rainfall against temperature in Texas, 2011. The blue dots are the last 100 years or so. Quite good pattern in terms of the, um, of, well, you know, there is a relationship, of course, with rainfall and temperature. But the 2011, as you can see, is way off any form of distribution that you've previously seen for the previous 100 years. So this is, a, as it were, a one in a couple of hundred year event. Now, the worrying thing that is happening, and this is pretty much predicted by the climate models, is that these one in a hundred year events are occurring very much more frequently. Now, it's very, very difficult to attribute a particular weather event to climate change. You can't do it. You know, anyone who claims to do it is talking nonsense. What you can do is to say, are particular weather events more likely with climate change than without it? So you can, in a sense, you, do the, you run the mathematics and you, you look at things where climate change is not happening and you look at them where it is happening. And what you find is some of these events, one in a hundred year event, one in two, one in a, are occurring three or four times in ten years. And that's the sort of phenomenon that comes out of the models, and actually it's the sort of phenomenon that we notice. When I first started in government, I remember um, one, of the, um, one, one minister I won't name said, well, yeah, this is just a one-in-a-hundred-year event. And the following year, he just had to say, well, this is just a one-in-a-hundred-year event. And the probability of two one-in-a-hundred-year events in successive years, you might think, is getting on the vanishingly small. If you can raise 100 to the power of two and, uh, do, and do the long division, it gets to be quite small. The other thing is that, that with climate and, as it were, the climate sceptical criticism, one of the things that the arguments that is brought forward is that, oh, these academics, they all want to, they all want to say that climate change is happening because that way they'll publish more papers, they'll get promotion from lecturer to senior lecturer, they'll get more research grant. It's in their interest to make a big fuss. And, you know, there's a bit of truth in that, knowing a few academics that I have done over the years, but... It's quite interesting to actually think about the business community. Do they think about it? Now, putting aside those who have a major interest in hydrocarbons and so on, who actually do think this is happening too, we need to be pondering it. And this is some data that are taken, in, taken from Munich Re. This is a major reinsurance company, the major reinsurance company in the world. And the, graph, the histogram at the bottom right-hand side... Um, it's colour-coded. Now, the red colours, which show no trend, are, ge are um, geophysical results. Earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanoes. These are causing disaster, and the reinsurers have to pay for it, so they, they knock it. 
The other ones, which are coded in a, um, are, are ones that are associated with weather and, hence cl and climate. And, as, and though I wouldn't hang my hat on the, um, on the trend line, what it's showing is that these reinsurers are really expecting an increase in severity of events. And I've just shown a couple of hurricanes. San Hurricane Sandy was completely massive. It, it took the whole of the eastern seaboard of the USA. Nargis one in, was one in um, Southeast Asia hitting Bur Burma. Many people killed. But these major and severe events are becoming more increasingly frequent, and we can observe that. And we are needing to ponder about how we address those issues. And there's various ways of doing, doing that. I'll talk a little bit about that later. But what I want to do is to also point to some of the trends that are outside the physical world but are in the social world. And in a sense, there's some very good news here. Um, this is some, a study that was done. I'm now based at the Martin School in Oxford. And this is the number of people in poverty, defined by living on, on less than $1.25 a day. And 2005, the size of the circles there um, are related to the number of people. Um, and this is the projection for next year. And it's pretty going to be about right. So you can see there's an enormous decline in poverty, which is fantastic. You know, this is, you know, there's a lot of faults with globalization, but particularly in, and you can see the individual countries, massive improvement in China, massive improvement in India, of actually raising from the very bottom the living standards of the people. Some countries, less so, you know, um, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, where the po both the population and the poverty effects are not so good. Um, if you want to look at this, it's on the... If you want to look in more detail at this particular thing, there's a rep the Oxford Martin Commission um, did a report on future generations. I was involved in, in writing it uh, at the tail end. Um, it's had a phenomenal effect, actually. Um, the, uh, there's been 600,000 um, downloads of what is quite a, a dull report. And I ought to know I wrote it, bits of it. Um, I did actually ask the girl who was head of our communications whether her mother now controlled a botnet so that it was, sort of, it was now downloading vast numbers of, her, of what she'd actually developed. Um, but going back to it, so that's poverty is being eroded. Now, it's, it's still there, and it's a still massive issue. Don't get me wrong, there's a billion people who are still living in genuine poverty, and I'll come back to that later. But we need to think about it. But also the middle classes, and this again from the same report, is the enormous increase in the people who we think about as middle class throughout the world, particularly in South Asia, um, less so in Africa, certainly so in South America, but virtually unchanged, as you might imagine, in the developed world, in the OECD regions. I'll give you some sort of capture figures. Currently in the developing world, and a fairly loose definition of middle class, i.e. on purchasing power, is about a billion people in the developing world who could be thought of as middle class. You know, they don't, you know, they can afford some good quality diet, they can afford um, consumer goods, they can travel and so on. That figure of a billion, which is, which is last year's figure, is increasing by 100 million a year. Again, that, you know, that could be interrupted by major social change, by wars and whatever, 
But actually what it is pointing to that in 10 years' time, the number of people in middle class will have doubled. So if you combine that doubling with an extra billion people and you think about the effect of consumption that it's going to have on demand for resources, this is really quite a big deal. Let me just show, because you know, this is not a particularly good slide, but it points out as you take people out of poverty, and this shows for general food consumption, or the increase in the consumption of meat in the diets, or the increase in consumption of energy, these are the things that as the, as the good thing happens, as we people become less poor, as people will be moving to the middle classes, or indeed just move out of poverty, you will expect to see a demand for natural resources go up. And this gives you it for three key resources. The one on the top left is energy. The, uh, the assessment there, I've made a distinction between the OECD, the developed world, and the non-OECD, demand for energy, pretty much static in the OECD, in the, non in the developing world, rising massively. In terms of water, um, there is a, a real hole in the water deficits um, in which, by and large, by about 2030, we're going to be seeing, we're looking at fresh water with a deficit of about 40%. And in terms of food production, we've been very successful in increasing um, the yields of food. The, this shows some data from the US um, Department of Agriculture shows the rates, the increase in the yield in tons per hectare. But what it would need to be if you actually would to meet it. So the little yellow, the parallel yellow, the flat yellow line, the flat brown line, are where you'd need to get if you were actually going to meet these demands. So just to conclude, we've got massive deficits in energy, massive deficits in water, massive deficits in food. And again, I'll emphasize um, that this is the sort of period 25, 2030, when this is going to be coming in and really crunching. Now, Quite a lot of stuff that you, you read in the future languages goes out to 2050. I can't really get excited by 2050. I'll be 105. Um, selfish, I know, but I hope I might run, live to be 2030, so I worry about it more. But these are the sort of patterns that the vast majority of this audience is going to have to recognise is going to be out there and what you'll be needing to live with. And that's the sort of summation up to 2030. A more, another billion or more people, massive increase in concentration of cities, big strains on this, migration to vulnerable areas, and climate change. And the summary is that if we take food, water, and energy, that's the amount we need to make more food, meet the gap in supply and demand for water, and increase energy by about 50-odd percent. And these are all sort of well-documented from international bodies. And emissions, if we go business as usual is going to be up about 37 or 40 percent. That's the sort of problems that we're operating on a 16-year time scale that we need to be thinking about how to intervene and what we can intervene on and what we can't intervene on. I promised you this would be a gloomy lecture, didn't I? Never mind, you can go for a drink afterwards. Um, but don't go by car. And, uh, <laughs> um, so let me sum, sum up some of these things. So the challenges we've got or the food security, a lot of people, about a billion people go hungry. Um, in addition to that, there's about a billion people who just don't have the proper nutrition. So for, every, for the billion people who actually just don't get enough energy at all, 
i.e. they are genuinely in food poverty. There's another billion people who are um, in hidden hunger. They're, the, the quality of their diet means that they don't get proper physical and mental development. Um, that's the effect of it. There's an irony, of course, which I won't go into in much detail, is, of course, there's an irony is that forever, there's about a billion people in, um, in, poverty, in food poverty and about a billion obese people. Um, it doesn't kind of work that way. You know, you can't... You know, I remember my mum always saying, you must eat up your X, whereas X might be fish or uh, baked beans or what, because, you know, the starving millions will... You know, you could give it to them. And I, I never really worked out the, the causal mechanisms at the time, and I think that's right. But it is an irony. And then you've got water security and energy security, and I've done it. Um, and let me just focus on water, because water's a tragedy... This slide shows the water, the top left one, concentrate on. There's a lot of water in India, particularly the northwest and the southeast, um, comes from, uh, from underground water supplies. Look at that one. And the red shows supplies that are overexploited. And this has been done in a well-meaning way by the Indian government by subsidising, uh, essentially, the fuel for pumps to extract water. And for agriculture, for small-scale agriculture primarily. And to give you a flavour for it, that water being used for irrigation in some parts of the northwest is several hundred years old. It's been underground for several hundred years, but it's being used for irrigation at the moment. And this is a real problem. Now, I've talked about Africa a lot, and some recent work, actually by the British Geological Survey, has found lots of subsurface water in Africa. Lots of it, but it could easily be overexploited because you're getting this, this pressure on cities, you're getting pressure on population, you're going to get profit pressure on it. So there's a real potential for doing it. Let me expand a bit on the malnutrition. Stunting. This is where children do not have a proper diet so that they can develop physically. So this is, means that 20-year-olds would be, would be about 4 foot 5, maybe 5 foot high. And that's the scale of stunting around the world. Big concentrations, as you can see, in sub-Saharan Africa and in India. And this is due to the quality of the diet, not the amount. They do not have key minerals, which would, key minerals and vitamins which would enable one to avoid stunting. And my reason for focusing on this is um, <clears throat> I'm involved at the moment in looking at agriculture and nutrition. And another one that we can look at is vitamin A deficiency, which can cause real problems, particularly in, in early onset blindness and poor sight in young children. And again, this is something that's worldwide. Not that you don't have enough food, but you don't have enough nutrients. Now I'm going to come back to climate change now, because I think that, if, that, together with population, is one of the things that we really need to be thinking about where we can make a difference. Climate change negotiations have been hopeless. Um, they've totally failed. You know, the world community set a target of two degrees, and they've totally failed to do it. Sir, do have a drink when you leave. <laughs> um, the, they failed. Um, there is no doubt about it. This, this shows them. There was some hope that there would be an agreement of the world community to cut greenhouse gas emissions, and they failed. Now, will they, ha will they be successful in the future? Don't know. Beddington money is not going on it. And one of the reasons it isn't is this. Let me just show you this slide, the bottom left-hand one, the dramatic one. 
is showing you a, a slide taken by NASA. It was actually on the front page of the Financial Times about a year ago. And why have I signaled out uh, Minneapolis, Dallas, but also signaled out something called the Bakken Formation? Now, this is light being, uh, emerging from the, uh, from the major cities of the Eastern and Central American seaboard, and this is the Bakken Formation. Now, the Bakken Formation, this light is coming from burning shale gas because shale gas is a waste product now because the, those who are doing fracking and taking it out are using it for, um, calculate it for um, a waste product. They want the oil. And that is the amount of energy that is being actually burned every day just in terms of shale gas waste. Gives you a flavour of what is actually happening in terms of the energy markets in something. And the price of shale gas um, and the price of energy in the US is well under half what it is in Europe. But there's waste. The other two things that I think are really we need to be thinking about are the major fossil fuels. Now, the Arctic, um, for good geographical reasons, warms faster than anywhere else. You may remember when I showed you the graph of data um, showing where, it, where um, the temperature had gone up. The Arctic is very much more vulnerable. Now, the irony of it is that, they, that as the Arctic melts, the, there's a lot of hydrocarbon result, um, reserves in the Arctic where, um, if you exploit it, will have a positive feedback. And the other one is, is coal. There is masses of coal out there. Now, coal is one of the dirtiest fuels for greenhouse gas, and gas is that you can get. It's really... And these are the concentrations. It is very hard to imagine that the Eastern Europe from the Ukraine east to uh, the, far, the furthest part of what was the USSR, China, India, Australia, um, USA itself, will not use these coal reserves. So we need, that is going to be happening. And one of the things that we therefore need to be thinking about is, the, is to, in a sense, accept that there are going to be problems and that hydrocarbons will continue to be used, that coal in particular will be used for energy, because you saw this burgeoning demand for energy, but the fact that we've got to recognise that that is happening. And we need to be thinking about it. I don't have time in this lecture to talk, for example, about various ways of dealing with carbon sequestration. But one of the big hopes is that we will be able to have um, a technology that turns um, carbon dioxide and some of the other greenhouse gases, liquefies it, and actually puts it underground, for example, into some of the empty reservoirs uh, of oil and gas reservoirs that have been exploited, so that we can actually use it, but we are getting rid of the waste product. Because if we don't, we're in a problem. Now, that's the really gloomy bit. I'm not a very gloomy person. One needs to be thinking about what we can do. And I talked a little bit about carbon capture and storage. We also need to be thinking about having energy in a renewable energy form, whether it's wind power or wave power or solar power. And investments in these are sensible things to be doing because we need to be thinking about an alternative energy source is the one that involved hydrocarbons. And there's a whole lecture I could give on that, but won't. Um, but there's other things that we have got, we, and we've got to get this right. Because if, for example, we don't organise the climate change issue, there's many things that can happen. One of the ones that probably people have not seen is ocean acidification. 
Now, the top right-hand graph is a very, very good tip for a student of how, to, of how by careful scaling your axes, you can make things look extremely dramatic. So if you have an axis that is denominated in millions of years and you're using, um, <clears throat> and you're using changes on a time scale of about 10 years, you can get a nice falling off the cliff graph that this one has done. This is not mine. I didn't cheat on this one. Somebody else did, but I would rather liked it. Um, but actually, um, the the simple interaction between carbon dioxide and the oceans is decreasing um, the acidity, is increasing the acidity of the oceans. And that was going to have a big effect on things to do with our marine ecosystem. Coral reefs have probably had it um, and will probably not really exist in any, uh, any significant amount within 30 years. And there's a lot of people depend on that for the fish resources. So that's the last gloomy one. Now, there's things we can think about. There's a lot that can be done, for example, um, to increase yields. Um, this, is some example, this is some stuff from uh, Vietnam. We're thinking about intensifying um, <clears throat> rice, in, rice um, production and also thinking about this. And the, the sort of figures are from, from some of the aid budgets. won't go into a lot of detail because I'm starting to run slightly out of time. The next one is that we can think about using agriculture in what we call a climate smart way. Having agriculture, for example, use crops that sequester carbon dioxide in the soil or having ways in, of dealing with the soil or dealing with the crop where you actually have it, where you do improve both the, the amount of fertilizer you need to use but you actually get carbon dioxide sequestered. And there's a big World Bank program and in, uh, the international aid program to get particularly farmers in Africa but also in South Asia operating agriculture in a, in a climate smart way which means that actually it becomes part of the solution not part of the problem. But we also have got, we are quite high tech. There are things if we can do, for example, we can think about renewable energy. This is, we can think about alternative energy mixes in the, in the developing world. Obviously, in the developed world, we have opportunities for more sophisticated work in terms of solar power, in terms of windmills and so on. But this is the sort of thing that you can actually see happening in the rural communities of the developing world. And again, this is, these are the sort of things that are subject to very significant investment at the moment, and properly so. Now, on the high-tech side, um, Rothamsted um, Research Station is the oldest agricultural research station in the world. It has... Uh, it has plots um, that were planted in the 1830s, which they've still been monitoring. But they have got a, they have got a target to actually increase the um, yield of wheat, this is a typical one, um, from about 8 tonnes a hectare to 20 in the next 18 years. That is going to be important. Um, there are some terribly unpopular in some sources the use of genetic, um, tech, uh, genetic manipulation. Rothamsted last year produced a wheat that was crossed with a peppermint plant and that wheat produced a pheromone which is the alarm pheromone of aphids which are a major predator um, and pest of wheat. Um, it was the peppermint plant. Um, some NGOs said it was that they were crossing wheat with cows, um, uh, which was a bit sort of quite a challenge actually, um, from a, from a, a technical point of view. But there was a tremendous outcry against it. I was chief scientist at the time, and 
there was a movement to destroy their plots because these were threatening the world at Rothamsted. And, you know, what you play these things in a variety of ways. I looked at the, um, you know, there was an expectation from the first things that we might get 20,000 demonstrators um, who would sort of essentially storm the research station and tear all this stuff up, urged on because they were saving the world by so doing. Actually, one of the things that was really good, and I think this is a thing for the future, is the scientists from Rothamsted engaged with them. They went on the TV, they went on the radio, they went on to debates, and they pointed out, first of all, that this was not being done for profit from major corporations. It was being done, the intellectual property they would develop would be available to the world for free, and these were the sort of ecosystems, and it meant that you weren't having to spray significant amounts of um, uh, pesticide against aphids, because they're a major predator. And that actually worked. Instead of 20,000 demonstrators, we had 200, and 107 of those were French. I make no comment on that. <laughs> but it is really important that the scientific community engages with the community that actually has very strong views and debates them. And I think that Rotham said did very well. Let me move on quickly. I'm running out of time. The other thing we can do is we are quite good at engineering. So one of the things we can think about is developing our engineering in agriculture, which means that we can be much more precise. Water's a problem. We need to not waste water by having inefficient irrigation schemes. We need to be having water targeted on individual plants. You can do that with satellite technology. You can do it with small-scale um, uh, engineering in interventions. Do the same with fertilizer. You can do the same with pesticide. And also, and just in terms of the ecology of the situation, there's massive underutilization of edible plants. This, thing, this is a thing taken from Kew, points to the fact that 80% of the world's food is, comes from 12 plants, that there are 30,000 are known to be edible, and about 7,000 edible species are partially domesticated. But the vast amount of scientific research, development and investment goes into those 12 crops. And actually, if you come down to it, four. Um, so there's things that you could do which would be smarter. And the other one that, in a sense, can affect us is waste. There's massive issues of, in food of waste. Give or take, 30% of the food in the developing world is lost before it's, it leaves the farm. In the developed world, 30% of the food is lost after it's been purchased from the supermarket and thrown away. And there's massive things that could be done. And actually, if you think about the increase, if we could take, get a hand on waste, we really would have a, a long way of getting a hand on the food security. And finally, I'm going to just say, what about the 2030 onwards? When John Beddington is 85 and doesn't really much care, um, or might be, I might be... You know, keen and alert and looking forward to, my, you know, to the very next lecture I'm giving in which I can say I told you so or whatever. Um, but what about the 2030 onwards? The one I really want to fo you to focus on is population. Because the projections for population are that we'll have another billion by 2025. That's going to happen. But if we don't see some decline in fertility you could be moving towards the upper branch of that graph. The central one is the best bet, but that assumes that fertility in the developing world declines, or at least plateaus. Now, we know what will determine that, 
That is, that what affects fertility is prosperity, i.e. wealth. The second is the education of women. And the third is the availability of contraception. If we don't sort that, and you've probably got 15 to 20 years, you're going to see a population growth which is not going to be up in the 2040-2050 region of about 8 to, 9, 8 to 10 billion. It will be way above it. And I actually think you're then really at the danger of um, an erosion of the world, um, the viability of world civilization. Um, 20 or 30 years. It's interesting. And it's hard. How many people have you heard in the last two years talking about their population being an issue? David Attenborough maybe once or twice, and this, this gentleman here, um, who, who comes to many of my lectures and applauds. Um, but it is really important. And we need to be thinking about it in a way. And in a sense, we can't rely on it. And one of the problems, of course, is that some of the big faith systems in the world are anti either contraception or the education of women. And prosperity was going to depend on lots of interventions and these things. So that's it. And let me just finally just show you something which I think is sobering in terms of people in the world. This is the problems for up to 2050. Similar slide, more of a problem. Two and a half more billion people. Urbanization, 70%. Um, climate change ongoing. That's the sort of deficits of food, water, and energy. And that's the fault of emissions, if unless we, which will go into business as usual as following. But the distribution is really interesting. That circle is where half the world's population live in 2013. In 2030, it'll be down nearly 70%. That is, it kind of puts in perspective, for example, do we really care whether we're in the European community? <laughs> do we really care that we're in NATO? <laughs> do we think our most important trading partner is Germany or France? This is something that I think is really intriguing, and this is for just for the this is the status quo. And if you think about it, and actually that circle, a good half of that circle is actually the ocean. And not many people are living there. Um, we could have put an ellipse on, but I think it's less dramatic. Um, and so that is the, the sort of world that we're going to be looking at. And as we move into the century, there is going to be a bigger and bigger concentration of the world in that circle. And it's going to be large, because all the population growth in the early slides show that the OECD, Europe, South America, North America, pretty much stagnant. The growth is going to come in Africa and Asia. So it's, a world, it's going to be a very different social, geographic world. So look, you all, some of you are smiling, so it's not been that bad today. So look, thank you very much for your attention.